Welcome to the Advent season. And uh, who says meeting in a theater is not Christmassy? I mean, you even have twinkling stars right here behind me, which I don't think that stained glass can compete with that. You know, you can, if you don't like the sermon, you can just pretend, like I told these teenagers a moment ago, that you're camping out under the stars and, and all is peaceful and good. Um, we're going to continue in the Gospel of Luke for at least these first few Sundays of Advent. And I realized that Luke chapter 11 is not a traditional sort of Christmas passage, but the reality is that all Scripture celebrates the coming of the kingdom of God. That's no cop-out. That's just true. It really does. And I think that uh, we'll find that these passages lend themselves very well to our anticipation of the Incarnation during these days of Advent. So look with me, if you will, at Luke chapter 11 in your bulletin on page 6. begins in verse 14. Now Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges." But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters." The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these words of our God stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and before you in this Advent season, acknowledging that we need you. We need you by your Spirit to come and help us to understand your word. Uh, Indeed, to help us to believe your word. Father, we confess that we are unable to do that on our own. And so I ask that you would, would be among us, that you would, would move powerfully by your Spirit among us and help us to recognize the power of your words and the power of your redemption, the power of your coming kingdom in our very lives so that we might celebrate and rejoice and be glad for your love for us in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> Over these past five weeks or so, we've worked our way through a section of Luke that emphasizes the topic, the theme of discipleship. And so we saw some weeks ago the sending of the 72. Jesus took those 72 disciples, not just the 12, but 72 who had heard him and believed him. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. And we saw there that a disciple finds joy where Jesus finds joy, namely that his kingdom overcomes evil, that his kingdom provides eternal security for his children, that his kingdom displays the sovereignty of God, and that his kingdom blesses all who receive it. 
And then we saw a proof of true discipleship in that well-known, famous parable of the Good Samaritan that we're called as disciples to gospel neighboring. That we're called by God to draw close to the broken, whoever and wherever they may be, because of the image of God in them. And we're able to do it because the Good Samaritan has gospel neighbored us first. And we saw then with those sisters, Mary and Martha, that a disciple has to pay attention to some things. That there are good things that can distract us and consume us and reveal us. And that there is instead the priority of the one thing, Jesus himself, who alone brings freedom and rest forever to his sons and daughters. And then these last two weeks... We heard that Jesus taught that God calls a disciple to pray. To pray persistently and to pray in faith, knowing that his or her Father in heaven longs to hear from his children. And so for Christmas, Luke has now at this point shored us up pretty well on discipleship. So I ask you this, are you now ready for an Advent test? What is Advent after all? Advent is the coming. Specifically, it is the coming of the kingdom of God. Throughout all of the Old Testament, God's people had waited. They had waited patiently, maybe sometimes not so patiently, for Messiah to come. And he did come and... Guess what came next? Conflict and trouble and problems. Why? Because the powers of this world are not pleased to have an infinitely greater power in the neighborhood. If you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, you are going to face conflict. The kingdom of God has come. And because it has come, people will be tempted... To disbelieve. People will be tempted to disbelieve this kingdom. Verse 14 When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. Now, Luke's account of that sounds quite positive at this point, and in some sense it is. Matthew gives us a little more detail in his accounting of this same event. Matthew tells us that in the marveling of these people that they asked they began to ask this question they they called out could this be the son of david that was their question could it be that the kingdom of god has come could it be that our long advent wait as the people of israel is now over could this be the son of david they asked they marveled and that was very positive it was the right question to ask but it quickly turned Negative, Luke tells us. But some of them said, and again, Matthew details. Matthew tells us who these some of them are. They're the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, the ones who perhaps are most threatened by another religious power. And these some said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. They want to make excuses. They want to explain this away and tell the marveling people just why it is that this man is doing what he's doing. 
And they make no dispute over the reality of a demonic presence here, which is interesting. I mean, this little passage is not necessarily a treatise on how we are to think about the demonic, but it is a picture of the reality of it, and it certainly is, in the words of these Pharisees, a mockery of the reality of the kingdom of God. Beelzebul is an odd little word, a lot of odd little name here. It's not one that you see too often in Scripture, but it does show up. It's actually the Greek form of a Hebrew parody name, parody name of an Old Testament pagan god. The word actually means Lord of the Flies. That's where the title of the book came from, Lord of the Flies. And it was evidently a a custom of the Israelites in the Old Testament to mock the so-called pagan god of Baal and call him Baalzebub, Lord of the Flies. In other words, okay, whatever you are, you can be in charge of the pesky bugs that nobody wants to have around. It was a mockery of Baal himself. And so what these Pharisees are doing is mocking not just Baal, they're mocking Jesus. This is not just doubt on their part, it's disbelief. Verse 16, others then to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. I mean, he had actually just performed a miraculous healing, but that wasn't enough. They reject it, they ignore it, they're tempted to disbelieve it. I I think they really don't want more from Jesus. What they want is to disprove the authority of Jesus, and to do so, in their disbelief, they call evil good, and they call good evil. That's what they're doing. And this was, of course, not a new problem, not in the Old Testament. It was a problem throughout the Old Testament. And in Isaiah 5, verse 20, the prophet acknowledges it. He says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. The kingdom of God has, in fact, come. And in disbelief, the world has sought to disprove it by calling good evil and by calling evil good. That's the world's reaction to the coming of the kingdom of God, to seek to disprove it, to disbelieve it. Now, you know that if I were to post on social media a a clear and simple statement saying that the only legitimate marriage is between one man and one woman. You know that if I posted that on public social media, I'd get a mixed reaction, wouldn't I? I mean, there would be certainly plenty of people who would say, amen, thank you for that statement. That's right. I agree. But there'd be a whole lot of people, Christians included, who might even post in response, ah, you know, be careful with what you say. And there'd be a whole lot more people who might not post who would think, "Ah, Colin, he's just old-fashioned. He's just not up with the times. Right? Because that's the nature of what our society will do with the coming of the kingdom of God. It'll be a mixed reaction because people know that If Jesus is who he said he is, then everything changes. They know that they are going to have to make some decisions. 
If Jesus is who he says he is, then we are no longer our own Lord. We can't just do whatever we want to do. We can't just design our own lives according to our own wishes. We can't just make our daily decisions about life and relationships according to the peer pressure that's around us. We can't just do that anymore if Jesus is who he says he is. And therefore, we're tempted to disbelieve. And so Jesus offers a line of reasoning here, of course, verse 17. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, If every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and divided household falls, and if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebul. In other words, it's quite simple, isn't it? Why would Satan cast out Satan? A civil war only serves to weaken the country that wages it, why would Satan do the same? Your accusation of me makes no sense. And then Jesus casts doubt on their own activity. Verse 19, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Now he's not talking about their literal children's sons. He's referring to their disciples, those who follow after you and do what you do and want to do what you Provide for them as an example. You Pharisees, you say that you cast out demons too. If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, then by whom do you cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Your own actions will be your own judges, he says to them. Verse 20, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If it is by the finger of God that I do this, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. I don't know that this is really a clear allusion, a very subtle allusion to a very well-known Old Testament event. Perhaps these Pharisees might have caught the cue. But back in Exodus chapter 8, we can read, and these Pharisees certainly had read, they knew the story well, of Moses leading the people out of Egypt from Pharaoh's grip of power and the plagues that God sent upon Egypt through Moses' leadership. And there in Exodus chapter 8, you begin to read about those plagues. And the first plague was the plague of blood, the water turning to blood. And the second plague was the plague of frogs, the land being covered with teeming with frogs. And we're told there in Exodus that the magicians of Egypt did the same by their own secret arts. In other words, they, they matched Moses's Miraculous plague in some way or another. But then the third plague comes along. And Moses, by God's power, turns the dust of the land into gnats. You know, G-N-A-T-S, gnats. Those little pesky bugs, peskier than flies even. And they were covering the nation of Egypt. And the magicians of Egypt could not duplicate it. They couldn't do such a thing. And so the magicians of Egypt said to Pharaoh, they said, Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen. In a sense, Jesus is comparing these Pharisees to Pharaoh. He's saying to them, look, you're not paying any attention to the finger of God at work here. Just like Pharaoh's heart was hardened, so is yours. Because of your desire to be your own Lord, you're tempted to disbelieve. And we are tempted to disbelieve too. Even at a time like Christmas, like Advent, we're tempted to disbelieve. I read 
uh, an Advent meditation by Paul Tripp this past week in which he acknowledges this. He says that Advent is a spiritual war, he calls it. And I want to read a bit to you from that. He says, The Christmas story, which the surrounding culture celebrates, puts us at the center, the place for God and God alone. It looks to creation for fulfillment rather than worship of the Creator. It makes physical pleasure our primary need rather than the rescuing intervention of the Redeemer. It's dominated by the comforts of the moment rather than eternal priorities. In every way, the story you will hear over and over again during this season is dangerously wrong when it comes to who we are and what we need. It encourages us to find comfort where comfort cannot be found and to place our hope in things that will never deliver. To be clear, he says, I have no problem with beautiful decorations, family feasting, or giving gifts. The Christmas season can be a time when families gather together again, renew relationships, and express love for one another. But I'm concerned that we're listening to a false Christmas story instead of remembering the true Advent narrative, a story that defines our beliefs about who we are, what we need, and what our lives are about. Now, Christian, realize that it's not just unbelieving people out there who are tempted to disbelieve when they see that the kingdom of God has come. You too, as well as I, have an inherent worldly motivation to disprove the authority of Jesus and the kingdom that he brings. Don't be so short-sighted as to stay there, though. Instead, see that because the kingdom of God has come, people will be freed. They'll be freed from the bondage of evil. Verse 14, Now Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke. Now, don't miss the obvious event that stirs the conversation that follows. Luke doesn't really emphasize the man himself. He doesn't give him a name. He doesn't say anything about the man's response except that he spoke. This man could not speak. He was mute. He didn't have a voice. Physically, it didn't work. Matthew, again, details, tells us that the man was also blind. He was blind and mute. He couldn't see and he couldn't speak. Probably for all of his life, however many years he'd been alive, he'd been cut off from all the nurturing elements of the world around him, from family and friends and worshiping community. He'd been cut off from them, bound by the evil effects of the fall in this world. But by the finger of God, Jesus freed him from the bondage of evil. And this is truly a sign that the kingdom of God has come. I mean, that was Jesus' objective. Right? To communicate by his words and by his actions that the kingdom of God has come upon you. But even he met with resistance, as we see here. You know, after being falsely accused and then leaning against that accusation with some simple logic and a declaration of the kingdom's arrival, Jesus illustrates with a word picture exactly what's happening here in this passage. Verse 21. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, 
He takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. That's what's happening here. So, for your own mind and thinking and your own cultural placement, you can substitute, you know, whatever scene from a movie. Maybe SEAL Team 6. It's the middle of the night. And Osama bin Laden and his strong men are holed up in their hideout. And then SEAL Team 6 shows up and everything changes. Or maybe you substitute a scene from your own home, your eight-year-old's messy bedroom, which is a total disaster until mom and dad discover it, and then everything changes. Or maybe if you prefer college football, maybe you prefer something like, well, the Big 12 championship yesterday. You know, Texas is pretty strong until OU shows up on the scene, and I'm sorry, Longhorns. I mean, it was close. You were close. You were almost there. The strong man changes everything, right? One seems strong until a stronger one arrives. And this is exactly why we celebrate Advent. A strong man, Satan, has armed himself. He has guarded his palace with oppression and with deception And he is claiming possession of the people of the world, thinking that they belong to him, until a stronger man, the Son of God, arrives to overcome the one who previously seemed strong. And as you think about this scene, this word picture, don't make one of two mistakes that can be quite common right here. The first one is, what philosophically minded people might call dualism. Dualism, just dual means two, right? And so dualism is the idea that there are two equal and opposite forces at work. And sometimes we think that way about about evil, and we assume that there's kind of, I haven't heard this in years, I'm glad for it, but there used to be sort of this kind of picture among Christians where Satan has cast a vote against you, and God has cast a vote for you, and now it's up to you to cast the deciding vote. That's just dumb. It's not true. Oh, Satan would, Satan would vote against you for sure, but th- this is not a democracy. There's nothing about that here. When the kingdom of God comes, there's no such thing as a democracy. He will free his people from the bondage of evil. He will do it. And he doesn't ask permission He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't even wait until the odds seem favorable for him. The gospel may unfold in the weakness of an infant, but it does not unfold in the uncertainty of dualism. So that's one mistake we're tempted to make. The other one is is this. We're tempted to think that it's only New Testament miracles that demonstrate the glorious truth of this coming kingdom. It's not just New Testament miracles like this one that demonstrate that. The miracle of your sanctification demonstrates it every day. Every day in your own life, this is happening. By God's grace, as He brings renewal to you, turning your heart away from temptation. By God's grace, as He brings renewal to you, turning your heart away from the vain hopes that surround you. By God's grace, as He brings renewal to you, turning your heart to see the righteousness of Christ 
for you by faith. This is what we wait for in Advent. The coming of the kingdom of God. Freedom from the bondage of evil. He comes to confront his enemy and to conquer. The first time I ever preached here in this church at New St. Peter's was actually 12 years ago today. It was the first Sunday of December in 2006. And I remember the sermon that I preached on that day. And I remember the people that I met on that day, many of you actually still here. And I remember the set that stood on this stage on that day. And it was not twinkling stars and pleasant park benches. The stage was pitch black. And on either side, on the wings, there were these enormous wrought iron gates. I don't know what the play was, but it was really intimidating. And here was a pulpit right between these two wrought iron gates. I've, I've never in my life except for them felt literally like I was preaching between the gates of hell. But that's what the coming of the kingdom of God is. It's coming to preach and proclaim the good news of the kingdom in the face of the gates of hell to free his people from the bondage of evil. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And with that, for those freed, comes a certain degree of gratitude and even allegiance. In May of 1962, an advertisement showed up in the San Francisco Examiner. It read like this, I don't want my husband to die in the gas chamber for a crime he did not commit. I therefore offer my services for 10 years as a cook, a maid, or a housekeeper to any leading attorney who will defend him and bring about his vindication. That was the ad that showed up in the San Francisco Examiner newspaper, May of 1962. An attorney named Vincent Hallinan in San Francisco saw the ad And he made the phone call. He called Gladys Kidd, the woman who had posted the ad in the newspaper. Her husband, Robert Lee Kidd, was about to stand trial for murder. An antiques dealer, an old man, had been killed in his shop. And there in the shop had been found an antique sword with dried blood fingerprints on it that matched Mr. Kidd's fingerprints. They were, in fact, his fingerprints. And now he was facing a trial for murder. He said he didn't do it. And during the case, the course of the trial, Hallinan, Vincent Hallinan, proved that Kidd's prints were there because he had visited the store the day before the murder and picked up that sword out of curiosity and played with it and accidentally sliced his finger on the blade of the sword, leaving fingerprints on the sword. And he demonstrated that the man was innocent of the crime and Kidd was acquitted. And then Hallinan actually refused Gladys Kidd's offer of 10 years of servitude. He just did it for free. Now, you can imagine, is there anything that Mr. and Mrs. Kidd would not have done for the man who freed them? Is there anything they would not have done? For him, I mean, at the very least, they would acknowledge their allegiance to this one 
who had given them freedom. Now, because the kingdom of God has come, that's just what all people will be required to do. People will be required to acknowledge their allegiance one way or another. The Son of God has come into the house of the strong man. He's overcome the strong man. He's taken his armor. He's divided his spoil, which his spoil was the people of the world that he had claimed. And he's claimed his spoil. And now, verse 23, Jesus says, Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now, there is a myth that pervades in our culture, and it's the myth of religious neutrality. I mean, it's everywhere. It's the idea that that you can choose to just sit on the sidelines, so to speak, when it comes to religious truth. And many, if not most of your neighbors, think this. Even if they've never used the term, they, they just, by default, they assume religious neutrality. Now, they are probably respectful of religion. They might think that it's quaint of you to go to worship on a Sunday. They might, they might even admire your morality, but if they do, it's because they don't know you very well, right? I'm just saying. They might admire those things, but they think that they can remain uncommitted. They think that their thoughts and their decisions and their convictions about life are wholly unaffected by religion. They think that, but that is impossible. There's no such thing as neutrality. It's like nature cannot stand a vacuum. You realize that? If there's a vacuum in nature, nature wants to fill it. You know that's true just by taking a flight on an airplane. You know, when you go up, you got to swallow to pop your ears, and you go down, you got to swallow to pop your ears again. If you don't, you're in trouble because there's a vacuum in your head. I hope not all the time, but there's a vacuum in your head, at least when you're flying an airplane, and you can feel that nature will not allow a vacuum to remain, right? The same thing is true here. The reality of human life is it cannot stand a religious vacuum. Something will fill it. Christianity, C.S. Lewis put it this way, he said, Christianity is either of infinite importance or it's not true and of absolutely no importance. But one thing Christianity can never be is moderately important. That's what religious neutrality says. It says Christianity is moderately important along with any other religion you might devise. But Lewis is right. Christianity is either true and of infinite importance or it is not true and you should just disregard it. But there's no way around it. It's one of the two. That's all. And so many of our days we live our lives as if we're just neutral to the gospel. I mean, really, as Christians, we often do that. We, just, we, 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 we give the sense that we're just neutral to the gospel. We're not against it, but we're not really wholly committed to it either. We've got other things to do, right? I mean, Advent season's busy. We've got other things to think about. And so Jesus explains, if you are not with me, then you're against me. If you don't gather the sheep for the sake of the kingdom of God, then you're only serving to scatter them. And when they scatter, they end up in the mouths of wolves. 
There is no neutrality. Because the kingdom of God has come, people will be required to acknowledge their allegiance. Your allegiance either lies with the things of this world or it lies with the kingdom of God. A young man, I heard the story of a young man who went to college. He went off to college and he enjoyed the newfound independence he had from his family and their customs together. And so he followed the lead of the other guys on his freshman dorm hall and he covered the walls of his dormitory room with racy pictures. And in order to intellectualize it a bit, he also included the pictures, posters of philosophers who had advocated for those types of lifestyles. And that was what he surrounded himself with in his dorm room. And at some point along the way during the semester, his mother became aware of it. And I don't know how moms discover these things, but, you know, teenagers, be careful. They do. And mom became aware of the way he had decorated his room and... She considered carefully for a while how to address it. And finally, after some weeks of considering, she sent him, she mailed to him a nicely framed picture of Christ on the cross between the two thieves, suggesting that perhaps he could have that in his dorm room. Subtle hint by mom there. And the son wrote a letter back to his mom to thank her for thinking of him. And he was honest. He said, He said, Mom, there were other things in my room, and I realized that if I were to display the picture that you sent to me, these other things were going to have to come down. You know, your life has pictures on the walls, too. But because the kingdom of God has come, how will those walls be rearranged? To what have you shown your allegiance? The kingdom of God has come. That's what Advent is. The kingdom of God has come. You will be tempted to disbelieve it. You'll be tempted. You have an inherent motivation in you, in your soul even, that is motivated to disprove and push it away. You'll be tempted to disbelieve it. But because that kingdom has come, you are being freed from the bondage of evil. Every day, you're being freed. And you, along with everyone, will be required to acknowledge your allegiance. Advent is upon us. The kingdom of God has come. So may you find in it freedom and joyful allegiance to the King who comes with it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Father, help us to believe these things. Help us to recognize the truth of your word and to um, turn ourselves, Father, to You. We pray that You would help us to know and recognize the ways in which You call us to turn away from temptation and the vain idols of our lives that call out to us, and to recognize that it is Your kingdom that reigns and not our own. And, Father, that we might give You glory because of it, that You have given us life in Christ. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. During the Advent season, you'll turn, if you turn to page 8 of your bulletin, you'll recognize that, or remember perhaps, that we often will uh, change our practice of confession of faith together rather than using the Apostles' Creed as we approach the communion table together. 
we use the definition of Chalcedon. This is from a, an ancient church council from 451 A.D. And the interesting part about this at Advent season is that this particular confession of faith helps us to think more clearly about the two natures of Christ. His nature as being fully God and His nature as being fully man. And so, Christians, as we approach the communion table, what is it that you believe? Following the Holy Fathers, we together confess the one and only Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in deity and complete in humanity, truly God and truly man, with a rational soul and body. He is of one substance with the Father in His deity, and at the same time, of one substance with us in His humanity. He is like us in all respects, apart from sin, as regards His deity, begotten of the Father before the ages, but yet as regards His humanity, begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer. We also confess this one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, in two natures, without confusion, change, division, or separation between them. They are together one and the same Son and only begotten Logos of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. This the prophets of old testified. Our Lord Jesus Christ Himself taught us and the creed of the fathers has handed down to us. This invites you to the table.